Please stand as you are able for today's reading. Today's reading comes from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 and verses 8 through 11. Hear these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bring up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offsprings among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, the peace of Christ be with each of you. It is so good and a little bit difficult to believe that we're already here on this third Sunday of Advent as Rachel has helped us to light the joy candle. We have now participated in hope, peace, and joy. And as Adam mentioned, next Sunday at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate the fourth Sunday uh, by lighting the love candle. And then uh, 2, 4, 4, 6, 8, 11, it sounds like a phone number, are our times uh, for worship when we will be reading Luke chapter 2, the nativity story. And we look forward to that. I remind you that our series is called Worth the Wait. We're in our third Sunday and we have chosen during this time to, spay, uh, to pay special attention to the prophet Isaiah, which, by the way, is the Old Testament prophet for 
the season that we call Advent, which means the arrival or the entrance of God into the world. And so we also want to say a special word of greeting to our online folks. We're so glad you're here. Uh, at 11 o'clock today, we have a, a visitor from California who's been online with us uh, who will be in person, who will be joining our church today at 11 o'clock. Uh, because of the ministry that you have created in our online ministry, for which we're, we're deeply grateful. Michael, thank you for reading our text this morning, and uh, we're grateful always for your voice and for your reading. When I was a teenager growing up in Nashville, I had a paper route, and it was my job to deliver the news to about 250 households in the Green Hills area. Uh, I noticed when I came back home 10 years ago, Green Hills had changed slightly over the years. But I remember those days, and as a teenager, 14, 15, 16, I, I seldom ever read the news, but I delivered it. It reminds me sometimes of our relationship to Scripture among some of us occasionally. But recently, I was reflecting on some of the headlines that I distributed in those four or five years, and I went over them anew. President Nixon resigns from office. I delivered that news. Two amateur geeks developed the Apple computer in a California garage. I delivered that news. Maximum highway speed reduced to 55 miles an hour. You remember that, where it took twice as long to get anywhere? The death of the king, Elvis Presley. Tidal wave kills 5,000 in Philippines. New York City blackout lasts 25 hours. 900 cult members commit suicide in Guyana. A peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, elected president. I remember those days, and in looking back, it's evident to me that most of the news that I circulated in those days, quite frankly, wasn't so good. <laughs> I learned as a teenager that bad news sells more papers than good news, and it travels faster, too. In fact, I think it was Tracy Morgan from SNL who said bad news travels at the speed of light and good news travels at the speed of molasses, and how true it is. One of my favorite psychologists, Daniel Kahneman, who is a Jewish teacher, psychologist, cognitive psychology, Hebrew University, once said, the human brain seems to contain a mechanism that is designed to give priority to bad news. And I think he's right. In fact, I read recently that in our current media, as little as 6% of news is good. Moreover, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but trust in news reporters has suffered over the years in that it's not enough for our media to report the news. They sometimes feel the need to spin the news or to give us an angle of what's happening as if we're incapable of interpreting things on our own. But all that comes to mind when I remember those days, those headlines, and I also still remember how much soap and water that it would take at the end of a day to wash all that bad news off of my hands. The stain would get into your skin, 
and sometimes, honestly, into my heart. I think the exiles, the Jewish exiles, were covered in bad news. For a half a century, they had lived in Babylonian captivity, which if you know your geography, the trail that they were led on, the Trail of Tears, I call it, from Jerusalem to Babylon was about 1,700 miles. For 50 years, all the news was bad. But, a dec but five decades later, 539 B.C., God moved through a Persian pagan king named Cyrus the Great who defeated Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian troops. And believe it or not, the first piece of legislation that he passed was the release and restoration of these Jewish refugees. Now, we have read now from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah. Scholars typically divvy it up. We have read this morning, Mike, from 3rd Isaiah. And much of Isaiah's early prophecy in the first 39 chapters, it's gloom and doom, it's judgment. And to be sure, God is a God of judgment and of grace. And Isaiah's foresight became reality. But in these later chapters, the news takes a redemptive turn. And you hear it in the text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They shall build up the ancient ruins and raise up the former devastations. It's fascinating to me that the word gospel in the Greek language literally means good news. The word comes from the battlefield, however. In ancient days when soldiers would go to war, civilians back home would wait anxiously for news to come from the front lines. When the outcome was clear, they would send a runner, a messenger, a herald, to run back home to give an account to the people. And by the way, this is the meaning behind Isaiah 52, 7 which says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who returns bringing good news. There would be a watchman posted at the watchtower who would watch for the news to come, would watch for the herald to run to bring the news of what had happened on the battlefield. And when the watchman spotted the runner, he could tell by his feet what the news would be. In other words, if the herald was sauntering or shuffling his feet, it was going to be a grim report. If his feet were strong and flying, dust kicking up, it was going to be good news. Reminds me a little bit of the story of the woman whose husband had bought her a new car, and she came home from work one day and said, I have good news and bad news. And he said, well, give me the good news. She said, the airbags in your new car work perfectly. My wife says from time to time she can tell in our house when it's Sunday because of my pace, because of my, my stride and my gait. There's a sense of urgency when you have news. There's a spring in your step. Next Sunday, we're going to read the birth story, the nativity from Luke's version of Jesus, and we'll remember how an angel said to shepherds, 
you don't have to be afraid because I've got good news of great joy, which shall be to all the people. But according to Luke, this news in Luke 2, it's not about war. It's not about winning a battle. It's about peace, shalom, goodwill, which in the Greek, in the simple Greek language, goodwill simply means kindness. And the shepherds were so overjoyed by what they heard that they made haste. They had an urgency about their lives, a spring in their step to share good news. There's two other words in Isaiah 61 that that I want to highlight, and those two words are anointed and appointed. The first word is the word anointed. The prophet speaks of himself as being anointed which in Hebrew, the word is Mashiach, which becomes the root word for Messiah, but it literally means, Mashiach means to paint or to smear. The smearing of oil was a sacred act performed on kings and prophets and priests. To anoint someone with oil was a sign of authorization and empowerment. I was thinking the other day of my own ordination when I was a young pastor and how Bishop Ernest Fitzgerald laid his hands on my head and said, take thou authority to preach good news. It was an authorization. It was a spiritual sanction, and apparently Isaiah had a similar experience. By the way, your baptism is your anointing, is your authorization. The second word is the word sent, which in the Hebrew is shalak, which literally means appointed. It's indicative of a particular task or mission that has your name on it, that God is assigning to those that he has anointed. By the way, you should have recognized this text, too, because you hear the exact same text five centuries after Isaiah in a synagogue in Nazareth where a bivocational carpenter preacher preaches his first sermon. Luke 4 says Jesus stands to read the scroll in synagogue that was given to him by the lay leader, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has appointed me to proclaim release to the captives. After he reads the text, he hands it back to the lay leader. He sits down, which is the posture of rabbinical teaching. You stand for the reading of the word. You sit for the teaching. And then he says, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he doing? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. Jesus is staking his claim. He is claiming to be the anointed and appointed one. He is embodying the prophecy. But he's not doing all the ministry by himself. He anoints and appoints disciples to join in the mission. He literally pours out his spirit on us so that we too might engage in the task of restoration. One of my life verses is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 
that reminds us of our anointing. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, in order that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were nobody, but now you're somebody. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's Peter's way of saying to the church, you are the appointed and anointed. You are the prophetic ones. Some of you have read some of the writings of Shane Claiborne, who is an East Tennessean prophet. Did you know that there are prophets in East Tennessee? Who distinguishes between a protester and a prophet with these words. Protesters are still on the fringes like satellites revolving around the system, but prophets lead us into a new world beyond simply yelling at the old world. In recent days, in our land, we have heard a lot of fussing and yelling. We are deeply in need of some gospeling. I've been reading, as some of you have, the news about the turmoil in some of our colleges and universities over the conflict in the Middle East, which we're all praying about and concerned about. There's so much hostility that we see, so much anger and violence. But lately, I've been encouraged by the way that Dartmouth University is dealing with the unrest. Dr. Susanna Heschel is a Jewish professor at Dartmouth. She chairs the Jewish studies there. She and her friend, colleague, who happens to be the chair of Middle Eastern studies at Dartmouth, his name is Tarek El Aris, have called for peaceful dialogue. I have a picture of these two teachers. They've been co-teaching for two years a class called The Politics of Israel and Palestine. They said of this issue, you cannot wait until there's a fire to do fire prevention. And so they've been teaching for two years. In the aftermath of what happened on October the 7th, they cautioned students at Dartmouth not to reduce the events to a single narrative. They said we have to learn to think in terms of complexity. After the attack, the brutal attack on Israel on the 7th of October, these two professors quickly organized a forum to help students do a deeper dive into the Middle East crisis and to recognize the limitations of their own knowledge. Said Dr. Heschel, we should not try to learn what's going on from TikTok. Can I get an amen? The two professors said, and I quote, we are attempting to create, listen to this, an intellectual culture alongside a culture of care where students and teachers can gather not to fight with each other, not to win an argument, but to listen and to have respectful discourse for the sake of restoration. Now, don't look now, but it appears as though Dartmouth University knows something about discernment. Said Dr. Heschel, our job as teachers is not to advocate, it's to teach. And not to teach students what to think, 
but how to think. That's what I call higher education. In fact, that sounds more to me like spiritual formation. That's front page news. And I think Dr. Isaiah might even have a place on that faculty who begins his prophecy by saying, come, let us reason together. As a child of God, you are anointed and appointed to the ministry of reconciliation and restoration to build up the ancient ruins and to repair the broken cities. And when we do that, there is inevitably going to be joy, not only for those who receive it, but for those who give it. Nehemiah was right when he said the joy of the Lord is our strength. The psalmist was right when he said weeping remains for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Teilhard de Chardin, the Danish theologian, was right when he said the infallible proof of the presence of God is joy. By the way, if you don't know, that's why the third candle is pink. It's rose-colored. It's not because we ran out of purple candles. Purple is the color of repentance, which is a part of Advent, turning around. But the third candle is rose-colored because that's the color of joy. So that even in the waiting, there's joy. Last word. Some of you know that uh, our staff annually performs a live nativity. We've done it for five years for our preschoolers. And we had the privilege of doing that last Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. I have to tell you, it's one of the highlights of the year for us. And all of us have a role to play. Some of us are shepherds. Some of us are wise men. Some of us are innkeepers. We have some angels, the holy family, the baby Jesus, the whole bit. And I'm the narrator. For some reason, every year, same part, I'm the narrator. I get to tell the news. After reenacting the story last Wednesday, the kids, as always, are brought up to the chancel, to the manger, the makeshift stable, row by row, class by class, to see and to touch the baby Jesus. I have pictures this morning. The expression on their faces reveals their joy. They approach always with this sense of awe and wonder. You can see it in their faces. They have not yet learned to detach themselves from their own emotions. We'll teach them that later, I suppose. And you can see the joy. I was watching one little girl in particular. She's three years old. She was apprehensive at first. She was a little afraid. But as she got close to the cradle, her countenance changed from fear to adoration. You see her in the red checkered dress so overwhelmed by the bundle of love in the hay that you can see what she did. She wrapped her little arms around her body and she hugged herself. I think it was instinctive. And when I saw her, I saw the gospel. It occurred to me that the baby in the manger is a picture of God embracing humanity, of God hugging you 
and me in the form of a human being. And she got it. While so many of us who were even playing the part missed it, she got it. And for me, that's front page news. After all these years, I'm, I'm still in the same business. I'm delivering the news every week. But this morning, I got nothing but good news. In fact, we're covered in it. And we're covered by it. And I've discovered that when it gets in your hands and gets in your feet and gets in your heart, that there's a spring in your step and you cannot help but share it in word and deed. And the upshot is indescribable joy. It becomes you. And friends, that is worth the wait. May it be so in Jesus' name.